0: Hello and welcome to our latest Herbert Smith Freehill's On the Horizon podcast, where we discuss the most material upcoming developments in corporate law and regulation in the UK that we expect to see in the next 6 to 12 months. My name's Sarah Hawes and I'm joined today by two of my partners, Mike Flockhart and Michael Jacobs, for a special edition of On the Horizon, dedicated to the latest on the UK's listing regime reform. The FCA have just published the draft rules for the new UK listing regime, stripping back the current rulebook with the aim of making the UK a more attractive listing destination and significantly improving the competitiveness of UK listed companies in international M&A processes. Um, Mike, shall we start with your initial thoughts on the new rules? Uh, Have the FCA gone far enough? Uh, Are there any areas where you fear they may have gone too far?
1: Thank you, Sarah. I think the FCA has gone as far as it realistically could, and I think they should be commended for their bravery, um, particularly in, in how they've managed to, to balance what are some competing views in the market as to, to where they needed to go with these reforms. Uh, and in sticking to their guns in some areas that, that would have attracted quite a uh, quite a level of attention, particularly from the buy side community. Um, It should be said that there wasn't too much in yesterday's consultation paper uh, that was new, Um, so most was consistent with the earlier consultation and discussion papers published by the FCA, Um, but there are some interesting areas where the further consultation has led to a change in approach, and we'll get into some of that today. I think the area where the FCA has been boldest, and this was well trailed in advance, is around changing the eligibility requirements for companies listing in the UK. Um, there has long been a concern in the UK market that the eligibility requirements are too strict. with companies turning to other markets, be it in the, the US or, or, or mainland Europe, um, simply on the basis that they were not confident that they would be able to be eligible for, for at least a premium listing in the UK. So the simplified regime with the removal of the requirement for three year track record, the the removal of a requirement for clean working capital statement, and in particular, a more disclosure based approach um, for control of assets and independence, rather than hard eligibility requirements. All of those things will make it easier for companies to list in the UK and should therefore directly have an impact on the attractiveness of the UK as a listing jurisdiction. Um, Mike so there are some more changes though in the, in the area around controlling shareholders which I think are, are quite interesting to get into.
2: Yeah so I think on controlling shareholders the FCA had originally proposed a complier explain regime for controlling shareholders so basically the current obligation is to have a controlling shareholders agreement and the FCA was suggesting let's retrench from that let's go to a, a compliant explain regime and they've actually flipped back to their original position and there was quite strong feedback across the market actually that the The current regime provided protections for um, boards in particular where there is a controlling shareholder to protect the integrity of of the independence of that issuer and so they have looked to retain the current eligibility and we think the continuing obligations as they apply to controlling shareholders um they're going to fca are going to consult more broadly on that and they're open to feedback on whether issuers can put in place alternative arrangements to demonstrate the independence of an issuer in the absence of a controlling shareholders agreement but you know essentially it's you know, the status quo continues to apply we think in relation to controlling shareholders which and um, we think you know is aligned with what we were suggesting was the right outcome you know and the proportionate process for issuers at this point
1: that's very interesting. And, and Sarah, you asked the question, do I think there are any areas where the FCA may have gone too far? I think the areas that have attracted the most attention and the most debate were firstly in the removal of the shareholder approval right for class one transactions. And secondly, the removal of shareholder approval rights in relation to related party transactions, to taking those in turn the FCA has long trailed their intention to remove the shareholder approval right for for Class 1 transactions. Uh, There was some concern in the investor community about that, um, that the Class 1 regime has been a staple of the UK regime for for many years now. uh, And it is a differentiation factor. factor it's one of the factors that people pointed to in saying that, that, that there were some, some premium requirements in the UK that, that ensured a higher level of corporate governance and a higher level of investor protection. Um, but the reality is that, that that requirement was unique in the world. There's no other major market with an equivalent requirement. Um, And that um, was weighing on UK listed companies when they were in competitive MA and a processes. Uh, We had direct experience of this. Others in the market had direct experience of this. Um, And the the, the reality was that very few uh, class one transactions were voted down by shareholders, at least absent an associated capital raise. I think in the history Mm -hmm. of the regime, there'd been two. So so it's such an
2: interesting point in the FCA consultation paper where they, they look at the deals gap between US listed companies and UK listed companies. And they basically have analysed that there are UK listed companies do fewer transactions than their US peers. And they, they're imputing, that that's because of the class one system. And that's obviously resulting in higher valuation premiums that U.S. that the UK listed companies are you know, compelled to pay for the execution risk of a class one
1: um shareholder yeah, vote it's, it's a great point and I, you know i think that exemplifies that why there was a rationale for removing it it's, it's also true that a lot of the investors in uk listed companies are invested in other markets both listed stocks and unlisted where they don't Benefit from this protection, so I think there was a clear um, uh, economic and, and intellectual rationale for removing uh, the requirements, and I think that will be welcomed by, uh, by by companies. And a very
2: similar point applies to the dual class share structure as well. So that's now going to be essentially much wider than the FCA had originally proposed, so there's going to be no arbitrary 10 year sunset provision. You can have dual class shares owned by more than just the directors, so there's going to be employees allowed to own dual class shares, as well as sort of trust entities for tax purposes, so it's much more of a founder friendly dual class share structure um and also you know the kind of voting arrangements for there. the FCA have clarified the sort of range of votes that dual class shareholders can't vote on and it's a very sort of proportionate sensible mix of of areas for example you know they can't vote on issuing more you know shares at a discount that kind of thing beyond 10 percent. so it's it's kind of preserving the economics of those um ordinary shareholders whilst also making sure that founders can exercise their sort of classic dual class share structure rights which i think is actually a you know again another example of how the FCA is taking a proportionate approach, but also maximising the UK in comparison with other listing venues such as New York. Mm.
1: Uh, then back on the subject of Class One, um, <laughs> it's absolutely fine. Uh, nice detour into dual class years there, uh, but but on the subject of Class Ones. I, What's interesting in the latest consultation paper is the FCA has proposed more specific and detailed requirements for an announcement to be published at the time that the transaction is entered into. um, And they're suggesting the inclusion of um, historical financial information, um, albeit covering two years rather than three, and not being subject to the same quite onerous requirements around the translation into the issuer's accounting policies. Um, there's a requirement that there be a, an explanation of the benefits and the risks of the transaction and a statement from the board that it's in the best interests of, of shareholders. Um, so, so so, an additional disclosure regime, I think there will be some questions uh, from issuers and their advisors about the, the exact scope of that. Um, there may be a concern that some of that detail is unnecessary or that it should have been left to companies and their advisors to determine the appropriate level of disclosure, having regard to their obligations under the market abuse regulation. Um, so, so it would be interesting to see how that evolves and whether the FCA publishes further guidance as to expectations in due course. But I, I wouldn't go as far as to say that I think the FCA has gone too far there. I think they are just seeking to strike the balance between the interests of the competing or the competing interests of, of market participants. Um, and it's understandable that that having uh, removed the approval requirement, the quid pro quo is, is a greater level of, of disclosure. It's, it's,
2: it's almost yeah. like they're looking at the market abuse regulation and saying actually this is what they would expect to see from an inside information perspective published and drawing the parallels of what was previously published in the shareholder class one circular so it's you can kind of see that there's a kind of balance being struck yeah I think I think that's
1: a, that's a very good analogy and and the, the other point of course around Mar, um is we will hope that as the FCA reforms the market abuse regulation next year it explicitly acknowledges that issuers will need to have the ability to um, walk cross major investors prior to announcing a class one transaction, even absent a shareholder vote. Um, I, I think sh- companies and advisors will feel it's important to, to, for companies to be able to take the temperature of their investors before they announce major deals and that there should be an explicit acknowledgement of that. So they don't otherwise fear that they have no legitimate basis yeah. for selectively disclosing uh, that information under MAR.
2: And if you look at the wins versus a class one circular, there's no requirement to present financial information on a consistent basis. There's no third party opinions or accounting comfort required. There's no working capital statement. There's no rules for your profit forecasts or estimates. There's no pro forma to a prospectus standard, although there's, you know, you will have to do some kind of pro forma. So I think that the FCA are taking the view that there's no third party accounting or advisor input required. So it should be A much more painless process to produce this enhanced notification to the market and so that's the kind of balance they're seeking to strike
1: yeah uh, so look in summary i think we feel that they've done a good job balancing the competing interests there but we recognize that other views may may differ Um, The the one area, this is very much a personal perspective, uh, where I think um, uh, the FCA may repent at leisure is in the removal of the shareholder approval requirements for related party transactions. Uh, And again, that's unusual. It's a UK specific uh, feature um but it is seen as being quite an important investor protection um there's a perfectly good intellectual argument uh, that that related party transactions should just be disclosed and then investors can form their own view as to whether or not they wish to stay mm-hmm. invested um but it, it's worth remembering that the rules like those were introduced for a reason and the reason they were introduced was because there were in the past some corporate governance failures where Companies uh controlled by dominant shareholders entered transactions that that stripped value out of the company and, and prejudiced minority investors. Um so I think that that's one to watch. It'd be wrong of me to say I think the FCA is wrong, um, but I think mm. that is one area where it, there is a potential for them to, to repent at leisure. And I agree, I
2: think it just goes to the the shifting of the the kind of risk allocation in the market to investors away from a prescriptive regulatory regime which is sort of designed to sort of prevent companies from you know being bad actors so I think you know we will see more you know blow-ups and I think that's the kind of feature rather than the bug if you know what I mean it's sort of inherent in in the kind of construct the risk allocation construct that the FCA is now going down um, and uh, you know it'll be interesting to see you know, if the upside of this mitigate, you know, is is can be balanced against the downside in, in the longer term.
1: Yes. And, and, and there was another compromise that, that was available. So the regime could have been retained, but with a higher threshold for shareholder approval to be required. Uh, and that hasn't been taken up. And I understand the reasons. Yep. But um, as I say, it might be interesting to see how that it, develops in practice. And interesting, the
2: related party um, threshold itself, so whether you a related party or not, has gone up from 10 to 20% of the share capital, which is again another dilution of, you know, who was in scope for the regime full stop, which yeah. I think, you know, is helpful for, I mean, we, we have a lot of issuers who, who really dislike the later party regime for, for good reasons. For good reasons.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And there might have been a compromise there as well, Michael. So, so if you, if you, reduce the number of, of um, related parties by increasing the threshold for a shareholder to be treated as a related party. If you increase the threshold for a transaction to acquire shareholder approval, and then potentially if you clarify the sorts of ordinary course transactions that would take you outside of the regime, that could have materially reduced the number of shareholder approvals yeah. being sought. Not, not that I think they, they were particularly common even under the old regime, um, but there, there was another route through that w- would have been available, but we we understand the reasons for the FCA not ultimately um, uh, taking that route
0: thanks very much um Michael in addition to listed companies obviously the rule changes are going to have significant impact on investment banks who advise listed companies uh, what do you think they'll make of these changes
2: I, and I think it's it's interesting because obviously there's a variety of views in the investment banking community on things like the sponsor regime which we you know we totally understand you know it's an onerous Um, set of obligations and you know it's a difficult you know economic balancing act to act as a sponsor so I think you know I'm sure they will welcome the scaling back of the the regime the scaling back of the sponsor declarations that we're expecting to see and a much more sort of tailored regime in line with the the kind of obligations and eligibility requirements that a company is having to go through in this new this new world. So the sponsor regime is going to contract materially in terms of its obli- uh, sort of onerous obligations. But, you know, clearly the FCA is still going to expect sponsors to act as experts over the listing regimes. They're still going to expect them to challenge third-party experts. They're still going to expect them to, you know, do appropriate, proportionate record keeping. So it's it's going to be an you know an iterative process. You know, I don't think there's been this big bang, you know, removal of the sponsor regime that some were perhaps advocating for. But certainly, it's a much more proportionate regime in line with the new the new world we're living in, going to be living in. And I think, you know, it's it's all to play for in some ways because the the sponsor regime is kind of what you make of it. And I think there's a lot of um, opportunity for investment banks to add value to their listed clients through this process. And I think you know the sort of more attenuated model, you know, should give them the opportunity to do so.
1: I was very struck, Michael, by the change in the FCA's tone around this. Um, I I think there's a clear signal in the consultation paper published yesterday that the FCA really intends to uh, engage with the sponsor community, intends to have a, a less adversarial relationship yep. and more consultative relationship. And that's relationship. consistent throughout the whole consultation paper, isn't it? It, it really is. And uh, consistent also with the discussions that we and others have had and the FCA have consulted widely uh, ahead of the, the publication of this CP. Um, but I think that that change in tone is marked and I hope that will result in, in a more constructive relationship between the regulator and, and the sponsor community um, and one in which um, that the sponsor community can ultimately be, be more comfortable with the burden placed on it because that has been a yeah. source of attention I think, and stress in recent years
2: and they have been listening with, you know you can see that from on station responses where you know they've decided to you know not um seek sponsors to sort of have this discretion themselves to sort of modify the class tests and actually sponsors were saying actually that's not what we want we don't want to be looked at after the event and be criticized for having made the wrong conclusion here. so the scf said actually no we will continue to help sponsors mod- you know with the assessment of whether or not you know, the class test should be modified. I think that you know that kind of thing shows, shows you that they are listening and are prepared to take a kind of more proportionate, um, you know, approach to the way the sponsor regime is going to work in practice, which I think is where the tension has really arisen rather than the actual regime itself. Yes, I agree.
0: Okay, thanks. So it's look, it's all good news so far, but Mike, very well aware that the regulatory framework is just one piece of the jigsaw here. Um, what are the main obstacles you can foresee to? UK market competitors improving even after these changes are in place?
1: So so these changes are necessary, but not of themselves sufficient. Uh, I think we have to acknowledge there's a wider market malaise and although in particular the eligibility requirements arguably maybe even the class one transaction requirements were a deterrent to to companies listing, we we should also acknowledge that, that companies have been choosing other markets over the UK and some of those markets have more onerous liability regimes they have um in particular in the US a much greater culture of of litigation against directors um, so so it's you yeah, know the US is not a, a a a um a light touch regulatory regime by any means so so it's never been clear to to me it's never been clear to us that the regular, regulations were a major factor in the UK being uncompetitive. There were certainly aspects that were unhelpful and it's good that they've been removed. But I think when you take a more holistic view, um, uh, other factors such as the unpredictability of UK IPO windows, the propensity of the markets to, to become skittish and, and to close um, uh, after one or two bad IPOs, uh, which, which makes it very difficult for companies to plan an IPO given how long it takes to prepare uh i think the the issues around disclosure limitations on on listed company director remuneration in the uk particularly versus what's market and what's allowed in the us um and also potentially the extent of analyst coverage in in the uk versus uh, some other markets again particularly the us those all weigh quite heavily on on the uk um and those issues are all going to require attention um uh, more broadly it would be interesting to see if a future government would have appetite to make more wide ranging changes to the UK tax regime. Uh, Some of these have been signalled by the government already, not so much tax, but more changes around uh, pensions legislation and regulation. Um, And if the UK government could take more steps to encourage or even mandate investment in the UK by by UK investment arms. Um, yeah, I think we, we need to create a culture of investment in this country. The focus at the moment is very much on encouraging retail investors to come back in and invest directly, and I think there's more that can be done there. Um, but we should also be looking at what we can do to encourage institutional investment in the UK, uh, and regulation form an important part of those incentives. And
2: the salient stats. I've seen is that you know the UK pension funds and insurance companies were represented of fifty percent of the UK equity market. Now it's four percent, something like that. So you know there's been a marked shift in in the in the structural um, components of the investment market. The buy side pressure that you see in in other markets just isn't there. So I think it's in, it's incumbent on governments of all persuasions. To really reinvigorate the UK's equity investment culture, to facilitate greater participation of not only retail but pension funds and insurance companies in the UK public markets, but also the private markets too, as the gateway to the public market. So growth capital, um, you know, through this, the various series rounds, you know, it's 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 all part of a holistic solution across the tax system, you know, pension consolidation. Um, you know, the other things that Mike was talking about around buy-side reform and the availability of research, you know, it's it's a general holistic approach that needs to be taken to really resolve the long-term structural issues that the UK faces vis-a-vis, you know, its main competitor, you know, New York, which has, you know, a perception of deep liquidity and aftermarket performance, which, you know, if you listen to the soccer change level isn't necessarily there either. So it's a real interesting, you know, dilemma, but also it's a massive opportunity. And what I'm really heartened by is the fact this is on the agenda. And we're really talking about this now. And actually there's a huge appetite for reform, I think, across the political um, spectrum to really push this, because it goes, you know, it's sort of, it really goes to people's ability to fund their retirement, um, you know, returns for savers and everything. So it's it's super important that we get this right as a as a country. And, um, you know, it's great to see the FCA taking this first material step, and obviously mansion house, et cetera, is another big step towards that, but there's a lot more to do. And I think it's a medium term, five, 10 year project.
0: Well, thanks, Mike and Michael, and and thanks too to our listeners. Um, We hope you found this podcast helpful. If you want further details on any of these topics or to keep track of them as they develop, do go to our HSF Corporate Notes blog. We look forward to you joining us again next time.
1: Happy Christmas. Thank you all.